0: National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. We're not far from Memorial Day weekend, the traditional kickoff
1: to the summer travel season. That means lots of folks across the United States have plans to head into the national park system. And there's been a lot of work across the park system, not just to prepare for this summer, but to catch up with some long overdue maintenance in the parks. This is Kurt Repinchek, your host at National Parks Traveler. We're taking time with today's podcast to take a look out across the National Park system and at the National Park Service to explore how things are on the ground, literally and figuratively. To help me with this discussion, I've invited Christian Brengel, Senior Vice President for Government Affairs at the National Parks Conservation Association, and Phil Francis, the Immediate Past Chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, to discuss recent events. We'll be back with them in a minute.
0: Since 1986, national park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook Passport to Your National Parks to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any national park visitor center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport Program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix the depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to offer members up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity line of credit. Now is a great time to apply for a rate of 3.25% APR before they jump up. Take advantage of low rates and a great deal at interiorfcu.org. Membership is required, equal housing
1: Okay, we're back with Kristen Brengo from the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Glad to be here. You know, there really has been um, a lot in the news recently about the national parks and the national park system. And I guess I'd like to start off with um, the new deferred maintenance number that the Park Service came out with um, recently. roughly and very roughly it went from roughly 12.8 or 13 billion from the last time the, the Trump administration mentioned it back in 2019 and at the time they said it wasn't really worth discussing it on annual basis um anymore and now um the um, Biden administration says it's closing in on 22 billion dollars um part of that increase is uh, a new methodology of calculating the maintenance backlog and i guess they're taking into account um some administrative costs that you would have thought would have been in there in the past, contracting costs, some um, um, different studies and whatnot. Um, what should we make out of this um, new deferred maintenance figure?
2: Well, I was reading a program about it uh, before we began today, and I see that instead of using work orders that have been the basis for the backlog in the past, where they accumulate these back, the, all these work orders that the park superintendents send in and regional offices or Denver service centers send in to come up with the, the total amount of backlog. They're using uh, parametric equations now, which I guess is an industry standard for determining the amount of backlog or maintenance that is needed based upon the total value of the assets owned by the national Park system. And so I don't understand it all yet, uh, but but it's not surprising, really, that when you look at the value of all the assets, that this number has gone up. Uh, Whether or not they're accurate, I don't know. Uh, We'll find out. But I, I guess one of the questions that I have and one of the concerns that I have is can we adequately, we, the National Park Service, explain that to the Congress in such a way that is persuasive uh, and that it has a lot
1: of credibility? Kristen, what have you heard about it?
3: Well, Phil hit the nail on the head that I was actually at a House Natural Resources Committee hearing in the early 2000s when Fran Minella was director of the park service and I remember Congress asking her how much do we have you know what are the costs of fixing the parks right now we know there's all this damage and I remember her walking around Capitol Hill with binders full of work orders and she would put them on the hearing table and say, this is what I'm getting back from the superintendents. And then we knew that they were taking these work orders and putting them into a database. And that's how they were arriving at this number year to year. Did that include costs of design and planning? Well, for the transportation side, because it's handled by the Department of Transportation and the Park Service, we believe that they were doing that for the transportation side but we don't know that they were doing it for the other park maintenance issues. And so it's not really a shocker here that those costs weren't fully added to the cost of the projects. So the fact that they're updating the number and adding all of the costs associated with the projects, that's to be expected. We also know from working on these issues-
1: Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why is it not a shocker that they didn't include those costs? I mean, when when I, as a homeowner, get ready to do some home maintenance or or some landscaping, I mean, I I just can't factor in the the labor or just the materials. I mean, I've got to, you know, pony up the money for the costs and whatnot of the project and factor that into my overall bill.
3: Because of the way they handled it, is that this was a work order. It was an internal document and the park superintendents were sending them to the regional office and the DC office and saying, I need to fix a road. Here's my estimate of what it costs right now. And they were putting it into a system. They hadn't been told you're gonna get this funding and then told to do all the planning and all the other things around it. It was just a collection of projects that they knew damage was accruing on. So it didn't have all of these costs associated with them. And so, This wasn't done in sort of this, at least the impression that I always had in this like systematic way that um, incorporated everything in it. It was a snapshot of what needed to be fixed. And so, I mean, Phil would know more as a superintendent than I would, but when we started the campaign on the Great American Outdoors Act, Pew at the time did a huge FOIA request and asked for all of the work orders. And then they hired a former park service person to put them in a database that you can actually still look at on Pew's website. And that database is just a database of all the work orders. And we don't know if the work orders were ever updated. So if you, if you had a work order in during the Bush era, when Fran Manella was walking around with her binders, it's possible that that those costs were never updated. And so personally, it doesn't surprise me if those things weren't updated and we don't have actual 2022 costs of these things, if in fact, this new system that the Park Service has is an update and it's accounting for inflation and all these other costs, that's a really good thing for, for everyone and, and to make sure that we know the actual costs of this. But I'm not surprised if, if some of this is old data and some of it is um, just a project description with an estimate.
1: Phil, And consistently done. Yeah, you were a superintendent for a long time, um, longest at Blue Ridge Parkway. But you know, somebody told me that the Forest Service had always been including those other costs into their um, calculations. Any idea why the, the Park Service didn't? You know, I, it,
2: every park was a little different. Every manager was a little different. Some uh, facility programs and parks had large staffs, uh, professional people who could do estimates on NEPA compliance and all the other things that have to be done in the planning and design and the engineering. Uh, Other park staffs are not as well equipped. And so uh, as maintenance funding declined and the number of people declined, uh, there wasn't a lot of time to spend on uh, this aspect of the maintenance program. They wanted to to fix the parks and keep them clean and repair them. And so it wasn't a priority. It was my experience moving from park to park to park and no two parks were really in the same place. And there's a lot of paperwork involved in this program. And so how do you, with limited staff that is always getting smaller, how are you gonna keep it up to date? And so I think that this new program it would be easier for that to occur because it's based upon a parametric equation. You know, if they can keep the, uh, the estimate of the value of the assets up to date by some measure and some means, that means that the, the uh, deferred maintenance program would also be updated. That's my interpretation of what I read this morning.
1: Well, does this mean that the the Park Service in, in Washington is going to do a better job of seeing that all the parks stay on top of these numbers?
2: You know, it's going to be very hard because the size of the regional offices are as half of what they used to be, and there's fewer of them. This number of people working in the Washington office has greatly declined as well. Uh, we have been focused on. Uh, getting adequate funds to restaff the parks to fill vacant positions, but the Congress has always been reluctant to fund central offices. So I think it's going to be difficult to do that. I was talking yesterday with some folks about the state of the affairs in the National Park Service. There's different aspects, and we need to look holistically at what needs to be done for the National Park Service to be an effective, competent uh, organization. Uh, we tend to focus on, well, we've lost 23% of our rangers or we've lost 40% of our maintenance people, but we really don't talk about the lack of training, uh, the lack of housing, you know, how long it takes to fill positions. We don't look at every aspect in trying to describe adequately what needs to be done. And then once we do that as well as possible, you know, the allocations to the various committees is, um, funding-wise, is is not sufficient to provide for all the needs.
1: Kristen, what does this new number mean in the big picture? And And by that, I mean everybody was excited about the Great American Outdoors Act, and we were going to cut the deferred maintenance backlog in half in five years. And now you look at this new figure, $21.8 billion of deferred maintenance, and you look at $1.3 billion a year flowing into it from the Great American Outdoors Act, and there's just four years left to that funding. I mean, this seems incredible.
3: It does. And, you know, it's when we worked with uh, Senator Warner and Senator Portman on the original bill, the Restore Parks bill, actually, it was the Parks Legacy Act, I think, when they introduced it in 2017. That bill actually said, we will pay for the entire Park Service maintenance backlog. I don't even think it had a number on it. And so that bill was introduced first in 2017, and then Senator Alexander, Senator King, others got involved and a negotiation ensued. And that's when the Restore Our Parks bill emerged and it was decided with the Trump administration at the time that they were only willing to do 6.5 billion. And so there was a desire originally to take care of the entire maintenance backlog when that first bill was introduced, but there was a negotiation that occurred and they capped it at at 6.5 for the park service at the time. And we went with it because we felt that it was far better to try to get rid of some of the maintenance backlog and the highest priority projects than nothing. And if you remember at the time, we were going up to Capitol Hill talk telling stories about the uh, water pipe bursting at the Grand Canyon, roads at the Blue Ridge Parkway and other places that were completely eroding off the side of hills, the Yellowstone Loop Road, and all the problems with the roadbed, sewage plants, there was a lot of empathy during that period of time among congress to do something to take care of parks but we knew from the number that was selected that it was a not going to fix everything and b not keep up with the cost of the problem growing over time and so we knew it was just going to take a chunk out of the maintenance projects that that were the most problematic throughout the park system where we had to look at where people were uh, going to have a miserable experience in a park if they didn't have potable water or drivable roads. And so we always knew it was just taking a chunk out of it, Kurt. We knew it wasn't A, fixing the problem in total and B, keeping up with the cost of the problem getting bigger over time. So we have to reconcile a fact here. The Park Service has the second most assets of any federal agency. The Department of Defense is the only agency above the Park Service that has more assets. So if we as a country believe that the parks are super important and that we want to continue to take care of them and they provide us, you know, our lungs and and fresh air and our history, and we want to continue to protect and preserve all of that, then we have to say the 75,000 assets of these places need to be fixed. And that's buildings, roads, big things that need to be fixed. And we just celebrate, we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of Yellowstone. These places are old, their infrastructure is old. We have to just commit to fixing them long term. And if it's reauthorizing the Great American Outdoors Act, which NPCA is gonna push for. That's one of the solutions. I talked with Senator King's staff uh, a couple nights ago. They wanna bump up appropriation significantly. This is a commitment that we need to make and we need everyone's help in doing so. And, and the other arm is philanthropy. You know, there are a lot of industries that benefit from parks, airlines, railroads, hotels, lodging, if everyone helped a little bit here, if Congress did did what they needed to do, if the philanthropic community could help more, we can we can solve this problem. It's highly solvable. It's just the Great American Outdoors Act wasn't a panacea. It wasn't going to fix everything. And If we had stuck to Mr. Warner and Mr. Portman's original idea, maybe we would have gotten there, (laughs) but we didn't. It was a negotiation. And so now we have to figure out what the next few years are gonna look like. But I think think the Park Service has done a great job in the last few years of repairing places. Uh, They've made very key investments. And I think as we see visitors going into parks this summer and in the next few summers, they're actually gonna see improvements that have taken place there. And hopefully it will invigorate folks to want to continue to repair the other places. And so we just have to, we had to start somewhere.
1: Okay, I want to to follow up with that in a minute. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back.
0: Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. We're back
1: with Phil Francis uh, from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Bringle, Senior Vice President for the National Parks Conservation Association. Kristen and Phil, I mean, this this new number, I mean, it's it, it's mind-boggling in that, you know, the last number we heard was around $13 billion, and then all of a sudden, um, three years later, it's it's $22 billion dollars. Is there going to be political pushback from Congress? Are they going to say, boy, we can't trust you guys to come up with an accurate number of, of what you need, so why should we give you more money?
2: That's how this all started. Many years ago, uh, the Congress said to the Park Service, when they asked for more money to do maintenance, "says says, well, prove it. Have, let's see the list of projects and how much it costs. And are you using facility management maintenance uh, programs? in in your parks and so the national park service began a process of doing just that and you know i think it's going to be hard to explain and there will certainly be people who are going to push back on that number i don't think there's any doubt about that but inflation is occurring right now at a pretty amazing rate and so these numbers are going to get bigger
1: Christian it must make your job tougher going up onto the hill and explaining to Congress why they need to support this kind of number.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's hard when you put a number out there and then you change it. And it's not sort of, it doesn't appear to be incremental. So there's always difficulty in explaining it to folks, but everything needs to be repaired. You can't have Sewage systems and water systems and roads and bridges, and expect that they're going to last forever. Everything has a life cycle attached to it. And, you know, pipes burst, roads crumble. It is a part of life. And if you own a house, you know that, you know, the roof has a, a life cycle. You have to replace it after a few years. You can't just patch it up. And so, We just have to, you know, remember as we look at these numbers that stuff breaks all the time and the big stuff breaks too. And because we, when the parks were established, we put housing in them and visitor centers and maintenance shops and all sorts of things. And in some cases, there are villages and parks, towns, basically those things need to be repaired. And I think I think it's amazing when you think about the Park Service and the staff and how much they've been able to keep everything moving along and keep smiles on their faces over the course of time that they did. But, you know, I know we talked about this a lot, Kurt, when we talked about the Great American Outdoors Act, but Mission 66 was a long time ago, before I was born, okay? And I'm a middle-aged woman. that was a long time ago and expecting things to still be functional that were repaired in you know, the 1950s. It's not fair. And so, yes, the Park Service will probably get criticized for not having this, their numbers in better shape, but we're not talking about a corporation here either that has access to new flashy systems. We're talking about the federal government and they don't always have access to like Phil was saying earlier certain trained people in certain databases and materials that a corporation would have access to and i think in this in our, in 2022 we are so used to our iPads and our computers and we just think everything is accessible and easy and the fact of the matter is the park service has 20,000 staff it's a and it's decentralized everyone's doing the best that they can and the systems are just not as great as the private sector. And so we have to help get it to be great and make sure we're spending the tax dollars to get it there. But this may be just eye-opening for the public to learn that everything is not perfect in our bureaucracy. And we could sit around and poke at people and blame folks but the fact of the matter is, is go talk to a park superintendent and ask them about the systems they have and their ability to do things. And they'll be honest with you about what their limitations are. And so I would say, let's not criticize our friends at the park service and try to help them get the money they need to be better at their jobs.
1: You know, you mentioned park philanthropy and um, the National Park Foundation has um, been doing an incredible job in recent years. They've been raising a lot of money for the parks. I noticed that uh, at the end of fiscal 2019 they had over 271 million dollars in assets in net assets and I know they they don't spend 271 million dollars a year that's that's uh, not not a rational approach to things but I understand a lot of their funds are actually in restricted funds the money comes in and it's not unrestricted dollars that they can spend anywhere they that the need exists and I've been trying to, to understand their restricted funds program, and I haven't been able to get through to that yet. But um, I'm just wondering if those philanthropic dollars that go into the Park Foundation, you know, how much might be for unrestricted uses across the park system, and how much would be, well, I really love Yellowstone and I want my dollars to go to Yellowstone projects, or, you know, David Rubenstein, I really love the National Mall and the Arlington House and my, I want my money to go there. Any idea? on on the restricted funds at the park foundation and in, in terms of that 271 million dollars and how much is restricted to x number of parks
2: i don't know but i do know that is any nonprofit, they always want unrestricted funds right. but the donors often have certain interests as you just described and they're going to donate money to those things that they want their money to go to so i think it's an educational process and but I think it's going to be hard to get a lot of unrestricted dollars. Having worked with uh, you know the nonprofits in Yosemite and Smokies and the Blue Ridge Parkway, and now being part of a nonprofit raising dollars, you know, uh, trying to find those unrestricted dollars are pretty hard.
1: Kristen,
3: I'm I'm not familiar with the uh, National Park Foundation budget, but we did work with them on the Centennial Challenge Bill back in 2016. And if you remember, that bill is based on specific projects, so essentially restricted funding. But the idea here was to leverage a dollar match for every federal dollar, there would be a philanthropic dollar. And I think the National Park Foundation and the friends groups have done a great job of maximizing that match money and leveraging it for really great projects, um, whether it's carriage roads in Acadia or um, the uh, walkways um, in Yosemite, at Mariposa Grove, there have been some really excellent projects where they've been able to leverage, you know, that that one-to-one match. And so, while it may be not great that the funding community prefers restricted money, we are. Getting some great projects done in specific parks that are focused on a particular project, but um, but it's it's that's what people like to do. Kurt, they like to know exactly where their money is going, and they like to be able to see the progress. And I think if if I were in the National Park Foundation shoes, I would say let's get the projects done if that's what people want to do. And you know, but I I don't know their budget well enough to know you know where they stand in terms of restricted and unrestricted
1: sure and you just mentioned you know yellowstone or yosemite and acadia and and what about minidoka national historic site what about fort laramie what about all those small parks that um really could use some some financial support and you know to your point about the the matching funds that uh Congress provided the National Park Foundation. You know, you're well aware, I'm sure, and Phil's probably well aware that uh, legislation just recently was introduced um, to boost that five million dollars a year to, I believe, fifteen million dollars a year. And the the Park Foundation has done a great job in um, seeking matching funds for that money. And um, you know, hopefully, the the rest of Congress will get behind that legislation and pass it as soon as possible, so you know we can start seeing the the fruits of that um, come come to fruition on the ground.
3: Kurt, it's really important to, to say, and I know NPF has pointed this out, but the National Fish, Fish and Wildlife Association has tons of money, <laughs> and Interior just announced yet another program where they're distributing funds for the America the Beautiful campaign, and I think it's to the tune of like $80 million I said on a call with them, and there's a desire that, to make sure that NPF becomes what NIFWIF is right now. And, and becomes that hub um, for the Park Service in some ways of those philanthropic dollars, and so not every uh, philanthropic arm of an agency is has as much money as as others. And so we, you know, this is something that we want to build up over time. And I think the bill that just got introduced to increase the money for NPF is is just the start in some of that.
1: Okay, here's a, here, here's a head scratcher question uh, for both you, NIFWF, um That's the National uh, Fish and Wildlife foundation kristen is that the formal name
3: something along those lines
1: Uh, my my point being national parks america's best ideas um national fish and wildlife refuges nice places but they don't quite stand up to the national park system why does nifwif have so much money and the national park foundation i mean the national park foundation is doing pretty good but not as good as nifwif any idea why the disparity
3: I think it has to do with how money is collected from the hunting and fishing community. Yeah,
1: And and to that point, there was, um, we wrote about this, um, some months ago, um, um, a proposal from, um, resources for the future, I believe, Margaret, Margaret wall speculated on how much money could be raised if there was an excise tax placed on, you know, backpacking gear, tent gear, whatnot, dedicate that for the national park service. Is that get any chance of uh, gaining uh, attention in Congress? Such a proposal.
3: It's been attempted before, um, and um, you know, you always have to retest whether people have an appetite for that. And um, I think in the '90s it was squashed, but now that outdoor recreation has become, you know, such a big part of people's lives now, especially in this COVID world that maybe folks would be open to it. Um, Whereas it was maybe more of a niche industry net, but now it's just sort of like you can get the fanciest boots. It took me three hours to buy my backpack because I, there were so many features that, you know, it was, I was like, Oh, well, if I could get a bottle holder here and I could grab it, that I want that feature. And, and so I mean, it's definitely taken off as an industry now, and so maybe we could start that conversation again. But um, I think in the '90s, folks didn't have an appetite for it. So, Phil, any
1: idea if um, this new deferred maintenance figure is going to put more pressure on the friends groups? I mean, it, 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 you know, the old saying was that the the friends groups provided that margin of excellence, and now we're seeing more and more friends group campaigns to provide some of the, the bone structure for the National Park Service, whether it's the Yosemite Conservancy raising $20 million for the Mariposa Grove um, restoration or the Grand Teton National Park Foundation raising 17 million or so for the, the Jenny Lake uh, restoration. And now they're they're investing millions in the, the Snake River access plans. I know the, the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation has done incredible jobs um, raising money for Flattop Manor, for um, the Bluffs Restaurant, are we gonna see more pressure on these groups to to raise money for the stuff that the Congress should be funding? Yes,
2: I think so. I think it's clear that it will be, but you know I think they I think those groups have some limits as to how much money they can actually raise. I remember uh, being in a meeting uh, with a very wealthy person who has hundreds of millions of dollars in assets. And he, he said to the group, he said, you know, he said, there's only so much I'm gonna donate to the federal government because I already pay a ton of taxes as it is. And so uh, I think there will be more pressure. And, and how much more money than that the uh, French groups can raise? I'm not sure, but you're right. I think, I think already there are programs that are being funded by nonprofits that uh, are, programs that would not have been able to be funded by nonprofits in the past because of policy considerations. And so I know that the Park Service is looking at, has looked at in fact using fee money, for example, or donated funds to hire permanent employees or to fund permanent type programs. I think I think there's a real danger in that. But I think Park Services, their their hands are tied. They really are They've been placed in an untenable position where they're having to do things that they would have considered not acceptable in the past. Uh, they, they've been very creative, you know, they've they've gotten a lot done with what they have, and I think they should be applauded for it.
3: I think that's well said. I agree with
1: Phil. Are we going to see a, a greater disparity between the haves and have nots in the park system?
3: Absolutely. That's always been a problem with the park system. And we need to figure out the equity issue constantly. And I have brought it up continuously with the Biden administration. In fact, I actually think they're very tired of hearing me say it. I think they're sick of, of me saying it. And um, and um, But we need to look at all of the parks. We need to make sure... They're all taken care of. And I think from our standpoint, when we look at some of the new park units that are, that are coming on, um, we're trying to figure out and help stand up some friends groups. And I think it's gonna start to become a real effort here at NPCA to make sure if we can help a group of people who care deeply about a park unit, help them get a nonprofit started to, um, to accumulate some philanthropic money. Um, like sort of uh, one of the things we're doing with Amachi is, is helping uh, the community in Colorado figure out how to uh, develop a philanthropic arm that's robust there. So it's, you know, there's more we can definitely do, um, but equity is a huge issue.
1: Yeah, I saw Eastern National, of course, uh, helped uh, bootstrap a, a nonprofit friends group for um, the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Those uh, um, National Seashores and Fort Raleigh and the Wright Brothers, and I, I believe once upon a time the the National Park Foundation um, set up what is now the Alliance in Florida for the Florida National Parks. So you know there are different organizations working to to try and address this problem definitely needs to be more we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back i'm talking with Kristen brengo from the national parks conservation association and phil francis from the coalition to protect america's national parks about the fiscal fitness of the national park service and the ramifications of it
0: full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads smoky's life is a biannual magazine produced by great smoky mountains association Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds as revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Phil, Kristen, um,
1: you both mentioned the struggles of the National Park Service, the the staffing situation, um, the, the cutbacks in the regional offices. Does the agency have the necessary staff across the regions to manage the deferred maintenance program?
3: I, I Only would guess. staff for <laughs> <There's> so many <laughs> things they need staff for. I just want to say that that deferred maintenance is just one category, Kurt. So exactly. I just want to make sure, like we have museum collections that haven't been cataloged. We have interpreters that are desperately needed in parks. We have so many things that need money for staffing. I just want to point that out before Phil goes.
2: Well that that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean it, there's huge deficits in staffing in the agency and and, and it's much more than Great America's Outdoor Act. You know, it's dealing with thousands and thousands of new visitors and damage to park resources and changes in behavior adding new parks, uh, you know, dealing with uh, exterior issues, you know, superintendents, you know, oil and gas drilling next to your park, uh, or uranium mining next to, you know, man, there there's so many things going on and the staff has just been depleted. And with the lack of housing and the changes in personnel and how long it takes to fill positions, uh, there's a serious challenge you know for the national park service managers to 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 really have a first rate organization uh, i i really feel for them they're in a really tough spot
1: you know on on tuesday may 20 or may 17th um, national parks is going to have a a webinar presentation with uh, John Jarvis, the former director of the National Park Service under the Obama administration, and his brother Destry Jarvis, who has a long conservation career. You know, Kristen, he worked for National Parks Conservation Association, and then he worked for the, the Clinton administration in the Interior Department. And they've got a new book out that kind of looks back across their... Uh, combined five decades, or each one of them five decades, um, working either for the National Park Service or around the National Park Service or involved with the National Park Service. And towards the end of the book, they make an argument that it's time for the National Park Service to be pulled out of the Interior Department because there's too much politics involved, wagging the dog as it were, for the National Park Service. Um, I'm sure it's gonna be a provocative conversation I have with the two gentlemen. What do you think about that proposal?
3: I haven't read their book. I haven't gotten my copy yet, although I'm looking forward to reading it. And, um, you know, John was a political appointee, remember. So he was a political appointee during the Obama administration. And so the fact of the matter is the way our government functions is that we run via a cabinet in the White House, and those cabinet members have to go through Senate confirmation process. And it's a, it's one of the checks on our government. And so even if the Park Service were pulled out and made its own entity, I don't see how it would function outside of the political process. And if you need money, federal taxpayer dollars, you have to go to Congress to ask for that money. So politics are very much a part of any agency. It doesn't matter there's no agency that's immune to politics if you're getting taxpayer dollars. So it's just the sort of reality of the American system um, of government. And so I don't know how you create sort of such an independent arm of the federal government that it would be immune to it.
1: Well, I think they're they're talking, you know, the looking at the Smithsonian institution as the model. You know, you have a board of directors that uh appoints the um the CEO, as it were of the Smithsonian.
3: Yeah, but that board of directors is made up of who? Former politicians. Isn't
1: isn't it a step removed from every four years you've got a new, possibly a new administration in charge. that has a different philosophy. I mean, we went from the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And you know, the the pendulum has swung back and forth.
3: I know it's painful and everyone it's part of our process. Um, But it, it wastes incredible amount of amounts of time as well. So not only does it philosophically change on you, but you also, you know, look how long we waited for Chuck Sams to be put in place as director of the Park Service. It's painful, you know? When John Jarvis was being um, considered in front of the Senate, I think from his hearing to his vote, it took eight or nine months. That's painful to have someone just waiting on the sidelines to do their job, but, um. It's a good philosophical debate to have. I'm not I'm not saying don't have that debate philosophically and and talk about the benefits and the the pluses and minuses of our uh, democracy. But every agency goes through it and I think we have to ask ourselves as a democracy, you know, how can the superintendents and the staff at the park service as career employees, improve transparency and public information in a way that it makes it harder for a political influence to come in and derail smart ideas. And I say this to Park Service staff all the time. It is 2022. Put the information on your website, tweet it, put it on your Facebook account, notify the public Get the information out there. Don't hide memos or information. Put it out for public consumption so it makes it very hard for anyone to come in and mess with a good decision. But if you use science, if you adhere to law and public policy and you show your work, you show your homework, you put it out there for public consumption, it makes it easier for a watchdog like NPCA to buttress your decision with Congress and try to make it bulletproof. But if you don't put that information out there, if you don't tell people what you're doing, it is much harder for those of us who are trying to help the Park Service every day to help them. And so there are many things that could never be done decades before that can be done now that can help insulate Park Service staff from political whims. And and I really, I mean, this is a challenge to park service staff. If you have science that proves protection of an animal, protection of people, get it on your website, make it publicly available, you know? But we, we have to get the institution to also create checks and balances so that they're not subject to political wins when Wind, winds that are that are traveling around. And I think when I look back at working on things like the Yellowstone winter use issue, there was nowhere to hide. Those environmental assessments were always put online and everyone could look at them and see that the noise impacts weren't being reduced, could see that wildlife were still going to be pushed around if there weren't guided tours. It, it's a good thing to put this stuff out there and we shouldn't have to just wait for a NEPA process to do it. That stuff should be available all the time so that we can have the, the checks and balances sit with those who deeply care about the parks and not the politicians. And so anyway, I'm going through this on many issues right now. And I just kind of feel like I think there are so many ways that career staff can build in more protection for their decisions if they didn't wait for a NEPA process or some other formal process. I I remember. Even during the Bush administration, some really smart superintendents would write these determinations on issues and publish them and just say things like jet skis don't comport with the quality of the experience we want to have at this park unit, so we're not going to allow them. And you know what? Even Gail Norton, the interior secretary at the time, couldn't argue with it because they put it out there. And, And so I don't understand why more there isn't more proactivity um, in terms of getting this information out there. I think I think it would help a lot.
1: Phil, what do you think? I mean, um, during your career, could you have gotten away with that?
2: Uh, some of the time, I could have. Other times, maybe not. I think uh, there's there was a lot of fear instilled uh, during the last administration, you know, about speaking out. They couldn't even say the word science before. Remember, some some um, scientist I think in California was called to Washington, to the Secretary's office, and um, reminded what he could or could not say. Uh, I've been called by the Secretary's office in the past for answering a reporter's question about whether or not we had adequate funds in a park, and and um, said that I was lobbying the Congress and that was illegal and. You know, that I needed to cease and desist if I wanted to keep my job. And then there's been other things that have occurred structurally in the organization that made it really hard to do what Kristen said. I absolutely agree with everything she said. Those are really great ideas, but you know, if you've got to send it up to the secretary to get it approved before you can put it out to the public, that makes it a bigger challenge. Of course you can leak it, I guess, but. But, but it is, it is difficult now in the past I've heard, well, we need to keep the national park service as part of the interior because it provides a layer of protection that if you had a separate independent agency, there would be more immediate and easy exposure to political whims. I look forward to hearing what they've got to say. This, this is an old argument and I look forward to hearing. and, and what, how do, how do you change? This is something, this is an important decision because, you know, the political climate is going to change eventually and it's going to be different. And then will this be a decision that fits well in the future? And so I don't know, you know, if I were king for a day and I had to decide, I'm not sure what I would do at this point, that would be a very, very difficult decision.
1: You know, transparency is, is very hard to achieve these days. I know the Obama administration said it was going to be very transparent, and I think it fell short. Certainly, the Trump administration fell short with uh, transparency, and I'm seeing it again with the, the Biden administration. You know, Kristen, you you, you raised some good points and, and some wonderful principles. The fact of the matter is, um, most of the questions um, I and the freelancers who work for the National Parks Traveler posed to the park service, park, individual parks, have to go to Washington before that park can speak to us. That's not transparency. You know, there are those superintendents who have put in three decades or three and a half decades or, you know, the chief ranger who's ready to retire and they're saying, what are they going to do, fire me? That's fine. I don't care, you know. But, you know, transparency is an issue that gets controlled by the administration in power. And we've seen that. And you know, I don't know if a freestanding park service would be more transparent or not. I mean, it, it just, um, it's it's hard to see that far, but um, certainly um, Tuesday's conversation with the Jarvises is gonna be very, very interesting and provocative and I really look forward to it. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. It's been a, a great conversation. I'd like to continue it and I'm sure we will continue it. And um, I appreciate your thoughts and inputs and any any parting shots?
2: Jordan, and thanks for doing this again. I think it's very helpful.
3: Yeah, and um, Congress is right now doing appropriations work. And so for everyone who's listening, um, this is a good time to weigh in with your member and, you know, call them up, write them. There are plenty of talking points on both NPCA and the coalition's websites. And, you know, please advocate for more staff and more money for the parks to fix fix things, improve interpretation, anything that you care about, this is a great time to call over to Congress and, and put in a good word for parks and and getting them the resources that they need. So, um, and if you need help, just reach out to NPCA. We're happy to help you, but it's, it's, it's an important time. This, this is the time of year where everyone's uh, doling out the money. So you gotta be a squeaky wheel.
2: It's really a bipartisan issue. I mean, it's visitors are, Support both sides of the aisle. So, yeah, I think that's a great idea, Kristen. Yeah.
1: Okay, that's Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Bringle, Senior Vice President for the National Parks Conservation Association. Thanks to you both for your thoughts today, and um, look forward to see what happens in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. As a reminder, Tuesday night, the 17th of May, um, National Parks Traveler will be holding a webinar with uh, Jonathan Jarvis, a former director of the National Park Service under the Obama Administration, and his brother, Destry, a longtime conservation champion, um, worked for the National Parks Conservation Association, as well as uh, in the Clinton Administration Interior Department. The topic will be a new book that they've got coming out, National Parks Forever, and in it, they recommend that the National Park Service be pulled out of the Interior Department and made a freestanding agency. To find out how you can attend the webinar, go to nationalparkstraveler.org. If you can't make the webinar, next Sunday we'll be running the conversation as a podcast. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Reppencheck. See you in the parks.